Hello and welcome to the Fremont Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. This is Stephen Robles and we have an additional episode for you this week with special guest Dr. Mary Graybar. She wrote the book Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. It's a very interesting interview. Before we jump in, we just want to remind you one more time about our awesome sponsor, Impact360.org. Impact 360 has those online courses about truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. We highly recommend you check those out. They're all online videos. You can do it with your kids, with your family. And as we go into the holiday season, now would be a great time to get those as gifts so you can really help share apologetics and give someone a strong biblical foundation. You can get $25 off any of those online video courses if you use the promo code FREEMIND at checkout. And also, don't forget, if you have a rising senior this year, check out Impact 360's Gap Year program. It's a nine-month program where your student can go off to the Impact 360 Institute, learn apologetics, learn how to defend their faith, and how to engage with culture before they go on to university. You can get your application fee waived if you use the promo code FREEMIND at checkout. So learn about all that they have to offer at impact360.org. That's impact360.org. And now here's our interview with Dr. Mary Graybar. Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. We are still in our God and Government series. Don't say still, though, like it's a bad thing. Just too okay, much, y'all. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just You're sorry. Saying. You're so silly. We are in our God and Government series, which we love. And we love. Um, we're excited about our guest today. She has doing such great work, and we're excited for you to meet her. Her name is Dr. Mary Graybar, and she's a resident fellow at Alexander Hamilton Institute for the study of Western civilization and author of the book, Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America. Welcome. That's where, that's where the boot track Thank comes you. in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is such an honor to have you on here. We're so excited. You're just doing yes. such amazing frontline work that is helping Brave. someone like myself who's on the, uh, on the very outer edge of millennialism climb out of my psyop hole and, uh, <laughs> and learn that everything I've always believed is wrong. So, you, you know, go. thank you for that. Yes. But you know, we, we, for our listeners who might not have heard of you, you have a cool journey and story. Can you tell us a little bit about your, how you've come to where you are today? Okay. Well, um, well, my journey began where I was born in, um, what was then communist Yugoslavia and Slovenia specifically. And my parents brought me here, uh, to Rochester, New York when I was two years old and I grew up in Rochester and um, I, you know, of course didn't remember anything about communism in Slovenia, but I heard a lot of tales around the dinner table by relatives and friends that would come over and, um, you know, learned about people being killed, hunger, uh, persecution and so forth and I went back in 1969 when I was 12 and I got to see what life was like there for a little bit and um, and so I've always been interested in that and wanting to find out more about my family history and when I went back to school I went back to graduate school I started reading these um, anti-communist books and um, I actually got interested in uh, a black conservative writer uh, by the name of George Schuyler, started a book on him. 
But before that, I was also writing on Howard Zinn and writing about the corruption of education. I was teaching college English. I had earned my PhD in 2002. And so I had written an article and then um, I was asked to write a 20-page report and present it at the National Press Club in 2010. And this was by Cliff Kincaid who used to be with Accuracy in Media, and then he formed his own nonprofit called America's Survival. And in 2010, Howard Zinn, at the age of 70, had died, and Cliff Kincaid requested his FBI file, which is over 400 pages long. And so, I, yeah, I, uh, you know, if you want to talk about corruption of, in education, you know, <laughs> Howard Zinn is... You know, among okay. the worst of the worst, you know, he wrote communist disinformation, and as his FBI file showed, he was a member of the Communist Party for several years and dropped that membership around 1956 in order to infiltrate the institution. So he, um, he was still writing his dissertation for his PhD in history, and in 1956 he went to teach at Spelman College. And so I wrote that, um, wrote that report, presented it, and I had an agent that was interested in that in 2011. I almost had a book contract, but that fell through um, because of uh, the publisher that the editor was working for. And, um, and so I went on to other things, namely my project on George Schuyler and started researching that. And that's still in process, been working on that for nine years. Hmm. And I was teaching at a number of colleges in Georgia, and most recently was at Emory University. And then in 2013, the grant under which I was teaching expired. And in 2014, I went up to the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization and became a resident fellow. And that's where I work now in my book on Howardson, uh, which I started working on in two, 2017, uh, was written at the Alexander Hamilton Institute. And my book came out about a little over a year ago. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. We're so glad that, um, that you took the time to do that. Um, you know, I'm thinking, I, I've actually been to Spelman before. I, I sang with an artist there for a while. Mm -hmm. And, uh, or I sang with an artist for a while. We went there on the trip. So I'm, you know, thinking about that. Wow, that's a cool connection. But, um, you know, you've, you've had some interaction even with the Obama administration. I think you, you started a, is it a nonprofit called Professors, Dissident Professors, something like Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it's um, Dissident Prof dot com, mm. dissident prof, prof short for professor. And um, I started that in 2011. I uh, got a $10,000 grant. Um, if someone found out, I was, I was just, you know, paying for my own expenses at the beginning to have the website put up. And I got um, a donation of $10,000 and $500. And so, um, you know, my intent was simply to provide uh, a platform for me and for others who were in education teaching and students to discuss what was going on in education 
Uh, you know, so this was almost 10 years ago. And what we're seeing out on the streets today, this summer, that was bubbling up and I wanted to expose that. And so it was suggested that I start a nonprofit so I could get the donations, right? Rich people want the tax write-off. And it, you know, it was educational, legitimate, nonprofit kind of work. And uh, it took me almost two years to get the IRS designation of, for the 501c3 as a nonprofit because um, I learned that I had been caught up in Lois Lerner's, uh, I think her, that's her name, uh, scheme at the IRS. Uh, she was going after the Tea Party groups, if you recall that, under the Obama administration, right? Because it was right around the 2012 election, and they didn't want those groups out there to be collecting donations and saying anything negative about, you know, what President Obama was doing, you know, especially in education. And I was criticizing Common Core, especially hard. So I, I uh, you know, I, I finally did get it, but I know what it's like to have the government against you and you're just doing something that should take about three months total and it takes you almost two years and you get stonewalled and you know what it's like probably just to call the IRS, right? You, Hmm. plan on spending your morning <laughs> on hold it anyway and so um i was part of a class action lawsuit against uh the irs for viewpoint discrimination so um, i have the website up and um i have a subscriber list so i encourage people who are listening or watching to go to dissidentprop.com and sign up for my newsletter i I inform readers about articles I've had published or if I'm doing speaking engagements or if I'm doing shows like yours. Wow. Wow. So you're saying the executive government weaponized the IRS against a citizen for their political opponents. Now, that's just crazy talk. But anyways, we'll just. It only goes out in communist countries, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we might yeah, have yeah. to take, we might have to edit that out of YouTube so they don't censor us. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, we we haven't. What I found interesting, there's a couple stories you tell in your book that were that were that were unique, and I don't. It's Howard Zinn's impact on popular culture and his connection to Hollywood and actors stuff like that is really interesting. I want you to tell our listeners about. But one of the things that stood out when I was reading that. And I don't know if you're familiar if you watch The Office, but uh, there's a there's a there's an episode. I think it was season eight or nine. So James Spader uh, plays the part of Robert California. He comes in as the boss, and he's supposed to be like this kind of weird genius guy on the show. And uh, the other guy comes in that's underneath him, and just to get you know to make sure they still have Columbus Day as a holiday. And you know uh -huh. he looks at him, and he's like, "Well, you know, Columbus committed genocide against you know an entire population of indigenous people." And and anyway, so again, you show how these Zinian ideas are put in the mouths of particularly in, in the mouths of geniuses uh, in, in in this show. But he has a really interesting connection with Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting that I did not know that about. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, Goodwill Hunting, uh, which won uh, 
Awards uh, came out in 1997, and it's a, a story about a 20-year-old working-class guy who's a janitor at MIT. And of course, it's you know playing up the Marxist class conflict thing in the script. And Matt Damon is playing this um, natural genius who is troubled, and he gets in you know, and a professor notices him and wants to get him into school because he recognizes his genius. And um, and Matt. The Matt Damon character Goodwill Hunting gets into a fight, and in order to, you know, not be punished by the law, he has to get this counseling and stuff. So he uh, goes to his um, psychiatrist, who is played by Robin Williams, and um, Robin Williams has a bookshelf full of books, and there's a multi-volume history of the United States and. Damon looks up at that and says, uh, uh, history of the United States, if you uh, want, want to read a real history book, uh, read Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, it will knock you on your <laughs> butt, or he uses the other word. Um, I'm not sure <laughs> if you want that language, but anyway, <laughs> um, you know, it's not, it's not like, so it appears, you know, and the book became, you know, it just increased in sales. It had been out for 17 years. It first came out in 1980, but that also really boosted sales. But Matt Damon was not someone who just, you know, picked up Howard Zinn's book and said, wow, this is a really great book. Matt Damon was the next door neighbor of the Zins as he was growing up. And his mother, a teacher, was friends with them. And when uh, Zinn's book came out in 1980, uh, Matt Damon was in fifth grade. And so Matt Damon and his brother, I think, had gone over to, um, you know, next door to the home of Howard Zinn and his wife, Roz, and gotten cookies and stuff. And so, of course, Matt Damon was very impressed by his friend's book and uh, so in fifth grade for Columbus Day he brought the book to class and read from it to tell his class you know what he thought was the real story of Christopher Columbus and of course you know then 17 years later Howard Zinn's book you know gets the kind of advertising that no agency, you know, that places products and movies, you know, companies will pay a lot of money to have, you know, Hershey's chocolate bars or whatever, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, Quaker Oats, whatever placed, uh, so people can, you know, see the brand name. But, you know, there was Zen's book, and, um, and so, you know, it's, you know, that's just one of the ties he has to sort of this, Hollywood culture. Jane Fonda was a good friend of his. Um, rock bands played tributes to him when he died. Um, you know, Pearl Jam did a song for him or dedicated a song for him. And uh, people write songs after they read his book. They cry after they read his book, and then they write folk songs. And so he's got this cachet of being, you know, very 
hip and cool as a, as a historian. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Can you tell us? Okay, a minute a minute ago, you mentioned you were um, inspired to kind of do some exposing or some wanting to dig deeper into the corruption you saw in education. Can you connect that dot for us from that and to the Howard Zinn's influence? In yeah. Well, I was. Um, so I, around 2006, I'd written some articles before then, but I, um, you know, I, I was hired temporarily because if you are, if you aren't an extreme leftist, you cannot, and this was true 20 years ago, you couldn't get a, a permanent teaching job that would lead to tenure. So I had a series of these temporary semester to semester jobs and I, you know, started writing for places like Town Hall and Front Page Magazine and the old Weekly Standard. And when department chairs and in one case a college president got wind of what I wrote, then all of a sudden uh, there was no more work for me the next semester. Wow. <laughs> so... And that was even 20 years ago, you mentioned. That was around. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Was, okay. Yeah, so this is a long time in coming. So what you're seeing in terms of, you know, statues being knocked down of um, the University of Chicago English Department giving themselves over to Black Lives Matter, which is really a Marxist organization, as you probably know. Yeah. Um, that's been building up. This didn't happen overnight. This, mm -hmm. They have been in there. It's been the long march through the institutions for decades, since the 1960s. But I was trying to expose it. I was trying to warn people because I'm on the inside, you know, and when you're, t when you're talking about some of the crazy things you hear and see in English departments, like lay people, like regular people, they... They don't believe you. Mm. They wouldn't believe me. Um, and, uh, you know, and Howard Zinn was just one of those um, sort of well-known public figures in education that I had come across. And so I, I wrote an article, I think it was for Front Page Magazine um, at the time. And, uh, you know, that, that got me noticed. But, but these things in, in academia, I mean, you know, when I was teaching at Emory University, I when I walked to my class, I taught two classes, and when I and this is in the English department, I would walk past the office of this professor, who within the English department was the director of sexuality studies, and on his door were gay pornographic images. This this is in English. This is where you're supposed to be learning about Shakespeare and uh, reading Mark Twain. You know, it used to be that, but uh, uh, learning how to write. So anyway, that that was so I, I've sort of, you know, since I've seen what has happened to, um, you know, the humanities, I've tried I've been I've had this compulsion to expose what's really going on. So good. Yeah, wow. And, and you, uh, even in your book, I think you talk about how they're starting to teach this stuff in middle school and even high, high schools. School, and colleges. can you, t you know, just inform maybe parents that like, what? They're teaching this? 
Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things I would do when I was writing is I would sort of go undercover to these teachers' conferences, and <laughs> and that was a very eye-opening experience because these teachers, uh, you know, on the taxpayer's dime, would travel for these conferences, and Howard Zinn would come up, and back, you know, 10, 11 years ago, what they were doing was they were photocopying pages from his book, handing it out at the beginning of class, and collecting it at the end of class. So parents wouldn't find out. But, yes, yeah, you learn a lot by going and listening to teachers and pretending to be one of them. And um, But now we have the Zen Education Project which is a nonprofit. I don't think they had any trouble with the IRS setting that up. <laughs> so that actually started, I think it got launched in 2008, and it was actually funded by one of Zinn's old students, because after Spellman, after Zinn got fired in 1963 for insubordination, he got a job at Boston University and taught there until he retired in 1988, but at Boston University, one of his students um, from the 1970s went out and got quite wealthy, you know, in our evil capitalist system. So he, <laughs> right, uh, so he decided to, in his words, give back, started the Zen Education Project. And uh, it is very influential. What they do is they, make downloadable lessons from Zinn's book for teachers to use. And so, and then there, for every day of the year, they'll mark a special radical holiday. Um, and so they've been, you know, for several years now, encouraging teachers to teach about Black Lives Matter since it got started. Uh, encouraging teachers to wear the Black Lives Matter t-shirts. Um, they uh, teach the Black Panthers as if they were civil rights activists. Um, they uh, talk about Native American rights and also they have lessons on Columbus and they offer an Abolish Columbus Day kit for teachers to use in school in their classroom. So these kits have sample resolutions. They have sample letters for students, you know, to sort of compose for their own schools or their cities to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. And of course, the lessons uh, they're mostly role play lessons, not a lot of reading, just sort of kids, you know, playing out roles. These lessons, of course, present Columbus in the same false way that Zinn does in his book, that he committed genocide and uh, that he was motivated by his capitalistic greed to enslave the Indians and that he basically started, you know, the transatlantic slave trade and so forth, you know, and so, um, you know, that 
organization has, oh, I think, you know, well over 100,000 people who've signed up for it to download the lessons. There are over 300,000 people on social media following it. So it is, it has a, a wide reach. And one of the things I also point out in my book is that it's not only a people's history of the United States, but it's the spin-off products that get out there. There are graphic adaptations, there are, there are people's histories of individual subjects, like art history, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War. His book is quoted at length in books for children. So he's really kind of filtered throughout education and throughout our culture. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that most people are probably really familiar with what he taught, but have never heard of him. I had never heard of him until this year. But when I began to see what he taught, I'm like, well, that's just the canonical view of what we all grew up watching Disney movies and everything we believe, right, is, is presented in here. And yeah. it's, it's on the mouth of, you know, people like, it seem, seemingly like AOC. It's producing the okay. fruits of what we're seeing in these, these riots. It's all connected in critical theory and, and neo-Marxism. But this would be, I guess, you know, you talked about the long march to the institutions. We, we've mentioned that a lot on the show in the past. But I think we sometimes might think that was just a kind of pretty language they used. But you're saying they actually put feet to the ground and infiltrated the academic world. And this would have been the historical um, side of academia that gave thrust to a lot of this overall viewpoint we're seeing today. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a lot of times um, people don't want to, you know, say communist, They'll, you know, and, and I get this a lot, you know, people, you know, on the conservative side will say, are you sure he was a communist, you know, uh, because you don't want to be accused of red baby, you know, that was right. what was used in the 1950s, you know, you're a Mac Mac McCarthyite, you know, but um, you know, Howard Zinn's um, FBI file was analyzed by the historian Ron Radish, who also had been a member of the Communist Party, and he compared Zinn's file to his own FBI file. And so he knew what the FBI had gotten right about him, you know, what kind of informers were telling the okay. truth. Hmm. And so he determined that Howard Zinn was a member of the Communist Party. Now, Howard Zinn, like all good communists, denied it. But in um, the mid-1950s, a lot of the communists uh, were ordered by the party to drop their official membership and to, and to sort of go undercover and spread the word. And that, and and Zinn, I think, dropped his membership around 1953, and in '56 he started teaching at Spelman. And of course, there he radicalized the students. He told them, um, you know, that they 
he made them question the rules of the administration um, about going to chapel. He called it a meaningless ritual or something like that about curfews, about the dress code, and, um, and turned them against the administration and got them into a lot of trouble. A lot of this he claimed was under civil rights um, activism, um, but most of it really was to, uh, to sort of to radicalize them. And he turned them against the president and his administration. The president was uh, for civil rights, but he wanted to maintain an academic environment. He didn't want, you know, his students turning into these, you know, communist radicals, which is what Zen was doing to them. And one of his famous students was Alice Walker. If you know, no, no, yeah, she's a writer, but um, Emory University, where I taught, has her papers now. I actually went through her papers. Um, and quoted a letter between her and Howard Zinn because they remained lifelong friends. Okay. And uh, at Emory, uh, when they acquired her papers a few years ago, the, they had a big display of these photos of her, and one of them was when she was hugging Fidel Castro. So there, nice. those are her Interesting, interesting. Oh my gosh. And so the basic, okay, so I'm, I'm going to give you my cartoon version of, of what I came to up understanding is American history and see if it matches what Zen was kind of portraying. But it was this idea that, you know, you had the indigenous people in the Americas that kind of living in this paradisical setting. They were all, you know, loving the kind of John Lennon Imagine song played out with, with uh, trees. <laughs> and so they had this wonderful scenario going on. Columbus comes in with the evil Europeans. He's, you know, slaughters all these people, starts the slave trade. Fast forward a little bit um, to the people coming over, colonizing uh, the Americas from Europe. And then, you know, the slavery, 16, 19, 20 slaves show up in uh, Virginia, and then they build this whole American experiment as a way to hold on to kind of patriarchal white Christian power and dominance and start this new society where they can kind of be on top in this hierarchy. And then they kept slavery as long as they could, and then they worked Jim Crow as long as they could, and then they transformed that into basically some manifestation of Donald Trump. And um, <laughs> here we are in the present. <laughs> to where we're just as racist as we ever were. And basically, if you want to move forward, you have to uh, uh, turn the whole system upside down. And that Howard Zinn kind of laid the, gave us the historical framework of that. Is that close to anything that he was doing? <laughs> no, no, you, you've summed him up very nicely. It's, <laughs> that's the basic narrative. And as you said before, a lot of people, you know, even if they haven't read Zinn, he popularized this version. He was, you know, beginning with Columbus, he was quite proud that um, by 1992, the 500th anniversary of, um, you know, the discovery of America, there were protests and people were accusing Columbus of genocide and, um, and Howard Zinn was, was quite proud of his role in that because he popularized that idea. Of course, that was an old idea coming, uh, you know, going all the way back to uh, Friedrich Engels of Marx mm -hmm. and Engels. 
Um, but, uh, you know, the, this notion also that the Native Americans or the Indians were like these sort of proto-hippies, which is the way <laughs> Zen presents them. They're all living in harmony with each other, in tune with nature. Women have been liberated. You know, they have a decision-making role. People are free. There's no spanking of children. Um, they're open. They're, you know, there's equality between the sexes. And, um, and the, you know, there's no war. Well, that's not true at all. I mean, if, if you read about what life had been like on the continent, you know, before the colonists came, there were constant territorial wars. Uh, you know, they, they didn't have private property in terms of land in the exact way we understand it, but there, was, there were brutal, brutal battles over, um, you know, territory to control. I mean, you know, there are over 500 tribes, and um, the women were not... Uh, equal decision makers for the you know vast majority of these different tribes they were the drudges they were out there farming with like a stick you know <laughs> poking the dirt with a stick and planting seeds and you know weeding and stuff while the men were off hunting or fishing or you know or engaging in warfare um, so um, you know, and, and it was, a, it was a, a brutal life for the most part. It wasn't um, an easy life. There was hunger and um, there were raids on other tribes. And when there were raids, typically the women and the children were sort of adopted into the new tribe. But the men who were captured were tortured to death. And then there was... Sometimes often they were eaten. There was cannibalism. So it was not, you know, an advanced culture. And, and of course, the way Howard Zinn presents it, he presents all 500 plus tribes as being the same, right? But there's a great diversity. You know, some were, you know, uh, were more, um, you know, Farmers, others were hunter-gatherers, some were more warlike, some were peaceful. But Zinn, um, you know, as you sort of aptly described his view of history, which is this cartoon version, uh, Zinn presents them all as being, uh, you know, the same, that they're all peaceful, loving, you know, kind, kind of, I mean, Zen was, was someone of the 1960s, that's his favorite decade, and so he's presenting them as sort of as living in a commune as, you, you know, the 60s radicals thought they would, those um, usually didn't work out, but, but that's, but, but it's, prop, it's a propagandistic version of history, and it's basically the same version that other communists have put out. Howard Zinn was just very, very skillful at writing this propaganda that drew people. I mean, people really get lured by his writing style. And so uh, 
you know, if you read the typical communist writings, they're dreadfully boring. <laughs> and, um, you know, you, you, your eyes glaze over, but Howard Zinn was an evil genius in terms of writing. He really knew how to draw the reader in and to present this kind of fairy tale of American history. Hmm. Wow. Um, that's really interesting. So, but speaking of his writing, sorry, you, you oh, yeah. mentioned that um, if you were his professor, that you would, you would flunk him because his writings, actually, he wasn't great at, I guess, following the literature rules and how you write papers and things. He did a lot of kind of plagiarism or things like that. Can you touch on that a little bit? Sure. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. The, so Howard Zinn, you know, his claim to fame uh, is mostly based on Columbus and that he demythologized Columbus, right? And his opening pages are very famous. There's even a scene in The Sopranos where the teenage son is reading a passage from Zinn's book and his parents get upset. And of course, there's this long debate because they're Italian. But I was reading this and as you know, when I started writing this book, I knew his book was anti-American and I thought I would just be exposing the bias. But even though Zinn doesn't use any footnotes, he does have something of a bibliography. So I looked up one of the books in his bibliography for that first chapter, and I had been going through Zinn, and I'm reading this book, and it, it's a thin little paperback by Hans Koning, about 100 pages long, and I'm reading it one cold January night, and I'm like, this sounds awfully familiar. It's, it's kind of the same feeling I would get sometimes when I graded students' papers. <laughs> like, have I read this someplace? Or this does not sound like a student. And then you look up the original. And for the first five and a half pages of Zen's book are passages from Hans Koning's book. All Zinn did was change around a few words. And this is some, you know, if you've ever, for those who've taught English, you know, if you're teaching any writing course or freshman composition, first day of class, you go through the syllabus and you say, plagiarism is very, very bad. There are serious penalties, you know, and, and it's laid out, you know. Uh, you will definitely fail the paper, you may fail the grade, it will go on your record. If you do it more than once, you will be expelled from college. Well, Howard Zinn does this for five and a half pages. And the book, furthermore, that he's copying from is not even a history book. It's a book written by one of his pals in an anti-Vietnam war group, Hans Koning, and Koning was a novelist and a screenwriter. So the book that Zinn is copying from is not credible. It, you could call it a lot of it, you know, being imaginative writing, fictional writing. And, um, you know, no one's heard of Hans Koning, but everyone's heard of Howard Zinn, and Zinn made a lot of money 
and really did not give credit to Koenig. And and you just don't do that when you're writing. You don't, you, you know, take whole chunks of someone else's writing and uh, present it as your own. Yikes. Wow. And so it'd be sort of like writing a, a history on Scotland and using Braveheart as a source <laughs> <laughs> for your, uh, your history. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so what you're saying, because I think this is an, is an important point, because, you know, if you come up in a conservative background, you might think, well, if, if I've learned America's good, I'm getting the whitewashed version. So I need to hear the other side and hear maybe what they emphasize a little more. So in this case, do you think he's just emphasizing stuff about Columbus that we don't hear? Or is, this, is he like making this stuff, stuff up? whole cloth in some cases and presenting a completely distorted picture. And, and, and I guess my next question would be if it is a completely distorted picture is how characteristic is that of his work in general? Okay. It's characteristic of his work in general. So the major chapters that I went through, I found the same thing. He plagiarizes other people. What he also does is he quotes deceptively. So in order to make Christopher Columbus out to be someone who just wants to enslave the natives because of his greed, he leaves out critical words and he quotes from his diary, but um, he, he includes those ellipses, you know, the four dots that indicate that you've left out some words but they're not, those words that are left out are not ones that change the meaning. And usually it's just a few words or it's a sentence maybe. Well, Howard Zinn leaves out entire pages, paragraphs, and he leaves out information that would contradict what he is trying to imply. So he quotes a sentence from Columbus with Columbus writing, they would might. Uh, they would make fine servants with 50 men. We could subjugate them and make them do whatever we want. Well, what he's doing, he's got these ellipses there in the middle. He's leaving out such phrases uh, that uh, Columbus writes that indicate that he cares about their um, souls. He wants to convert them to the Christian faith. He says, we could convert them more by love than by force. Uh, Zinn leaves out what Christopher Columbus told his men repeatedly, to treat the natives with kindness, to not cheat them. In fact, he punished those men when he could. When they did cheat them, he had one man hanged for it. Uh, Zinn leaves that out. He leaves out what Columbus's motivations were, which was to spread the Christian faith. So the reason he wanted gold was he thought he was in the Indies and that he could reach the Grand Khan of China and finance a trip to take Jerusalem back from the Muslims. But uh, Columbus had uh, these several of these natives baptized. He adopted one boy uh, as his godson. So you never hear that 
in Howard Zinn's, you know, story. So, so much is left out. And if you quote something deceptively, you can give the opposite impression. You know, you can have a sentence and you take out the word not, N-O-T, right? You have, I mean, that's essentially what, what Howard Zinn does. And um, he twists around what people say. And of course, that would get any student a failing grade. Uh, but he does this repeatedly uh, in documents from the US government on Vietnam, um, you know, in terms of uh, the founding, in, in all areas that he covers in his history, he does that repeatedly. And people have asked me, and I say, well, uh, isn't there anything good in his book? And I, I can't, you know, every single page, you know, that I covered has one of those strategies where he quotes deceptively, twists things around, uh, plagiarizes, uh, insinuates, um, you know, just, uh, it's just false. It's fake history. That's why I, you know, said fake history in the subtitle. Yeah, go. Let's one go. of the rare times, Seth will be proud of this comment. He didn't have any um, work in media or did he? Any journalism work or anything? Just kidding. Just joking. <laughs> right. Did he work for uh, MSNBC for oh, a while? No, just kidding. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. That, that is a good way because we, yeah. I think these days, if nothing else, young people are accustomed to fake news and we've seen how things Ooh, have been, been um, distorted. And if what you're saying, if your thesis is true, that much of our popular concept of America is this great evil in the world is rooted popularly back to Zen. Um, and he was likened unto what we call the fake news. Sorry, did you have something you wanted to add, add to that? No, no, you're right. I mean, um, he, you know, there have been other radical historians and educators, but no one has gotten as much popularity as Howard Zinn and as much influence. Um, you know, he is a, uh, you know, he was a rock star historian. Um, people still quote him. I, I have a Google alert on Howard Zinn every day. You know, people, you know, who might be writing for MSNBC, um, you know, any of these uh, left-wing news outlets, they quote him um, favorably. He's an inspiration to people, to commentators, to celebrities, to musicians, to social justice warriors. So he is this icon, he is out there. He reigns large in the imagination of leftists. Uh, in the Occupy Wall Street movement, his book in the library in New York City was the most popular one. So, Go to any of these sort of left-wing sites or groups and you will see, you know, or ask them what they think of Howard Zinn. <laughs> and they will, they will quote him, you know, if a, if a conservative, you know, quotes George Washington leftists or uh, Alexander Hamilton or the founders, uh, you know, they will quote Howard Zinn. Man. Amazing. And you even, I heard you on another interview where you said there was a, a, 
I think it was an Oklahoma City Council member named Jo Beth Hammond who took her uh, oath of office, not on the Bible, but on Zen's book, right? And a few others. Is that right? Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So in Fairfax, Virginia, there was a school board member who did the same thing. Mm. Uh, so imagine, you know, Zen's book is the equivalent of the Bible to these people. They're making laws. They're on school boards. Um, a, a district attorney in Maine quoted his autobiography, You Can't Stay Neutral on a Moving Train, in her speech that she gave after being sworn in. So this is not just, you know, um, you know, something that's staying in the classroom. It's a, it's a, just imagine the kind of a decision, uh, you know, someone in the city council will make who has been so influenced by Zen. Mm. Now, this person is not going to want the police to keep law and order because Howard Zinn presents the police as being completely corrupt and illegitimate. Zinn wanted to basically abolish the police and abolish prisons. Um, you know, just think about all the decisions that city council member makes. And now today it's a city council member. You've got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about their, you know, about borders. There should be no borders. That's Howard Zinn's idea as well. He said this country was illegitimate. Uh, it, it was a pretense. That's the word he uses for the United States of America. He says it's a pretense. So if, if something is a pretense, then it can't have borders, right? Right. Yeah, because it would be somewhat likened to Chaz slash Chop. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, but apparently they did have borders, though, so I don't know. I don't know what's going yeah. on. Yeah. And guarded by people with guns, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, the irony, the irony in 2020 is just beautiful. If nothing else, we can laugh, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so... You know, I think it's frustrating for many people because I think you mentioned this earlier, but this book of the People's uh, History of America, I don't know if that's the exact title, but it's taught university, it's taught AP courses in high school. And so you come into it thinking, man, this is neutral history that your parents don't want you to know about. And you grow up in this, you, you begin to apply it politically, it makes its way in Hollywood. So it becomes this ubiquitous force. So what are, what are lay people supposed to do? And, and, and I think number one is buy this book, um, Debunking Howard Zinn. Yes. I like to talk about, you know, you got your woke kit, and that would be, I think Howard Zinn's book would be in that with Robin D'Angelo's and even Max Kendi. And, you know, if you want to become woke, here's a kit. So if you want woke proof, um, I hate to word, use the word vaccine, but if you want a woke proof vaccine, <laughs> put this one in your, uh, in, in your list, Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History okay. That Turned a Generation Against America. And I, I would imagine you have um, footnotes in there leading lay people if they want to get more accurate history. We're not looking for whitewash. We're not looking for Mark this wash but you know you want somebody that's given a balanced view of what really happened as best as they can at least honestly quoting the primary sources and not um, intentionally distorting them and then ignoring the stuff that contradicts their thesis do you give some of those in your book and what would be some of those books that we 
the lay folks should begin to look at if they want to work against this narrative that's so present in our culture? Yeah, well, I have um, I have about a thousand footnotes, and I did extensive research, and I used his- reputable historians to refute Howard's in historians who are both on the left and the right, as long as they're factually a- accurate. I've gone through um, uh, papers at Emory University. I've been through Howard Zinn's own papers at New York University. I've been to the Library of Congress, looked at the papers of the NAACP, which was an organization that Zinn just poo-pooed, right? He liked the Black Panthers. So. Um, I would also suggest the historians as in disparages, like he disparages Samuel Eliot Morrison, uh, who, wrote, who was probably the best known historian when it came to Columbus, because Zinn wanted to promote himself. Um, so read his book, uh, Bernard Balin. He just died at the age of 97 a couple months ago. But when I was talking about, you know, what life was like uh, when people came to Jamestown, uh, it wasn't this Shangri-La <laughs> of, uh, you know, the Garden of Eden or anything like that. But Bernard Balin is, I don't, I don't know if he would have called himself a conservative, you know, he really didn't get political, but it's a balanced look. You know, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a book called um, The Age of Barbarism. And, and he talks about, you know, the um, 17th century. It was what we would consider barbarous, uh, you know, both by Europeans and by the Native Americans. It was a time when Uh, You know, when servants got whipped and people in the military got whipped when there were, you know, public executions, things we would just, you know, shudder at today. But he is he is uh, a very reputable historian before a good counter to Zinn's book for just a general history book is uh, a book by Wilfred McClay called Land of Hope. And it just came out a little bit before my book did, and it's a good balanced history. So, of course, it was Abraham Lincoln who called America the land of hope. And then Ronald Reagan used that uh, when he was in his 1964 speech for Barry Goldwater when he was relating an incident uh, from a Cuban exile. He said, if America goes, what other place is there? Mm-hmm. This is the last, the last best place. It's the land of hope. So the land of hope, just for general history, I would, I would highly recommend. Okay. Very good. And one more question. What are the top three takeaways um, from Howard Zinn's work and its effects on young people and our cultural culture today, you would say? Well, uh, as I, I was at the White House Conference on American History, and I had five minutes. Okay, you got it. Uh, my remarks, right? And, and President Trump came out and, and said, you know, this is corrupting 
our uh, our young people, and um, he was, you know, following what I had said. But if you read Howard Zinn's book, and if you don't know any better, and you get wrapped up in it, you get angry, and you become depressed. People say they cry. Um, but what Zinn presents, you know, chapter after chapter, is the story of people who are oppressed. They rise up, they try to get reforms, they're pushed back down by the oppressive regime, and on and on it goes. There is a glimmer of hope, and it's usually in a violent uprising. And so, Zinn's thesis is that this, co this country is irredeemable. So, you know, women got the right to vote. Well, that, that really doesn't make any difference. Civil rights laws don't make any difference. Um, child labor laws. We, according to Zinn's view, we have never made any progress. The only glimmer of hope on the horizon is through a communist revolution. So against this picture of the United States as this oppressive regime, he falsely points to other countries that have tried uh, communism. And of course, that's false as well. You know, he'll say, um, you know, that these were local democracy movements and the United States quashed them. Um, but for Howard Zinn, the hope is in communism. Wow. wow. America is not the land of hope. The hope is in communism. And so the sum total of reading the book is this idea that this country cannot be reformed. The only way to bring about any reform is to overthrow the government as it uh, has been established and to replace it with a communist regime. Wow. wow. Well, wow, wow. here's my last question to end on a more positive note. Hopefully, we'll see. <laughs> but um, do you have, you know, being out there in the front line, doing the work that you're doing, which is so amazing, and we're so mm -hmm. thankful that there's are people out there like yourself doing this, but do you have much hope or optimism that we can recapture young minds in America and give them a more accurate view of history that would inform their approach to America and, and you know, politics in the future? Well, I, you know, I, I have to have hope, you know, I, I, I can't stop, you know, trying to do what I can to get the word out. And I'm hoping that, you know, if there is an alternative, I mean, up to this point, a student who was assigned Howard Zinn's book, who may have been questioning what he was saying, would not have had another book to look at and to, you know, bring to class or even to, you know, just cite something that I say, or maybe, you know, if others have refuted Zen, 
to to come back and and you know ask his teacher well what about this and you know i noticed that zin you know leaves out these critical words and that his sources are not reputable so that's you know that's my goal to have that out there and you you've got to keep spreading the truth and you know not not as you know that this country has been perfect or anything but in terms of you know what life was like in the past and compared to what life has been like in other countries you know as an immigrant you know i recognize that this is the best place on earth and um so you know with shows like yours and you know people spreading the word it's got to get out there at least it's out there and i know and i know that um since the white house conference the people on the left uh have acknowledged me the leftist professors and um so i i, I think uh president trump has done a great thing and uh, people who are you know spreading the word are are doing a great thing and um, you know if you get to five people if you get to 500 people it will spread wow. so I have I have faith that that will happen Wow Amen. well so good we will uh, take hope with you yes. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. This has been a, you know, just such a treat so for us. Funny. And we've learned so much already and can't wait to keep following you. We, we uh, subscribe to Epic Times. We see that you write for them as well. And so we're going to continue mm -hmm. to, to read your books as they come out. Look forward to the new one. Um, and then, yeah, thank you for what you do. We'll, we will put you on our, on our prayer list for Frontline yes. Warriors, and we appreciate yes. it. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for spreading the word. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Mary Graybar and that you've enjoyed all the episodes in our God and Government series. Don't forget, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can go to youtube.com slash freemindpodcast. Subscribe and all these episodes have video right there in our playlist for God and Government. You can also check out our previous playlist for social justice and even more videos there on YouTube. So that's youtube.com slash freemindpodcast. We'd love to interact with you on social media, Instagram and Twitter. You can find us at FreeMindFM. And if you're on Facebook, you can go to FreeMindPodcastFM. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts so we can be discovered by more people looking for this content. And don't forget, we also have those bonus episodes available to you. Support the show with any amount just to support the show, but then you also get access to all the back catalog of bonus episodes, lots of awesome question and answer sessions with our past guests. We'd appreciate if you check that out at patreon.com slash freemindfm. And you can check out all of that with the links in show notes and on our website, freemind.fm. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.